Part One of With Swag and Billy by H. J. Tompkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part One Give to me the life I love, let the lave go by me, give the jolly heaven above and the byway nigh me, bed in the bush with stars to see, bread I dip in the river. There's the life for a man like me, there's the life for ever. R. L. Stevenson Far from the madding crowd If the object of the tourist be to get from Dan to Beersheba with all possible expedition, making no effort to gain any definite knowledge of the geological character of the country through which he passes, its products and so on, then, indeed, rail, bicycle, motor or aeroplane will serve his purpose. It is fairly safe to assume, however, that there are many tourists who require some more satisfactory return for their time and money. To glibly run off the names of districts and townships visited, of which you know only a little more than a cat knows of conic sections, may serve to excite the envy of less opulent friends, but in this, as in most things, superficiality is a sorry asset, and hereabouts lies the secret of the winding roads and bridle tracks fascination which once it has burnt in, so transforms the pedestrian tourist that he can rarely again settle down to the monotony of consecutive days or weeks that one of the legion of tourist establishments, even though it may reasonably boast all the comforts of a home, plus driving, fresh milk, and new-laid eggs, not to mention other seductive but more or less apocryphal allurements. When the spirit of the nomad is aroused, when the city stifles and the bush beckons him, and in fancy he sees the water sapphires gleaming, where the river spirit dreaming sleeps by fall and fountain streaming under lute or leaf and bough, down beneath fern-feathered passes, noonday dew in cool green grasses. Reader's note, from the poem Mooney by Henry Kendall. End of reader's note. Then it is that reaching for his swag and billy, he sheds his city garments, and striding along now vigorously, now leisurely, lights his campfire, where and when he will. Each mile brings something different, every day's programme is different from the last. Mountain and valley, bush and bird, exist only for his entertainment. Each tour is so sharply and permanently fixed in his memory, that no matter the lapse of time, so soon as he presses the button, lo, a fresh court in memory's picture-gallery is exposed for his enjoyment. And, incidentally, this is a common experience of the old hand, in the strenuous intervals, as he draws solace from his pipe in the stifling environment of bricks and mortar, with a bush hunger heavy upon him, comes a recollection of joyous days, when he was privileged to obliterate his me, and become part of the Australian bush to thread his way through scented woods, amid the music of the birds, possessed of a rapturous sense of irresponsibility, when there were no arbitrary divisions of time, and filled with the spirit of revolt, he did not hesitate to pronounce civilization a desperate failure. What days were those, Parmenides? Reader's Note From Empedocles on Etna by Matthew Arnold End of Reader's Note No morning paper no post, no tram, train or boat to catch, sky overhead, 
mother earth underfoot pumping god's pure air through his lungs and halting to camp at his own sweet will weary of limb at times and of blistered feet perhaps but the ecstasy of it the circumstance cannot be too much emphasised that the walker gets right away from beaten tracks far from the haunts of sputtering motors trams and trains he may climb mountains and descend valleys accessible to none else but horsemen guided only by cattle tracks for example on such trips as the burragong valley bell's line mounts wilson and irvin megalong valley and shooter's hill vehicular traffic is in part quite out of the question and on occasion you may walk for the best part of a day without meeting a member of the genus homo some attempt has been made to show the extent to which the observing and imaginative faculties are stimulated by walking tours and their generally beneficial effect on the health the health value of walking this is manifest from the following excerpts taken almost at random from the writings of recognised authorities on physical culture thus j cuthbert haddon walking is the very best tonic that can be presented for exhausted brains weakened muscles and worn-out nerves it strengthens the digestive organs drives the blood away from the tired brain and is one of the best remedies for nervousness and mr bernard macfadden affirms it is well to note that walking keeps one young it delays old age it drives out old age cells makes every part of you throb with life and health and strength one of the youngest old men that i ever saw in my life was a professional walker who claimed that he had a habit of walking from fifty to twenty miles a day and although a man of nearly sixty years he had the complexion of a sixteen-year-old girl for those who are striving for health or who are in grasp of a serious chronic disease no exercise is quite so valuable as walking combined with deep breathing walking is more especially valuable for cases of this kind because the exercise is difficult to overdo if you simply stop when you are tired nothing but benefits can be derived from it i do not mean by this that you should stop at the very first moment that you feel the slightest twinge of fatigue for you can continue with benefit until you can actually enjoy a rest a walker the author of a series of interesting articles in sandow's magazine writes now let us see what are the benefits which may be derived from a walking tour first of all walking is a grand exercise one of the best there is anyone who has the slightest knowledge of physical culture will tell you this hardening and developing as it does the muscles of the legs thighs and loins the lungs benefit too not only by the inspiration of purer air but by the extra work put upon them one feels compelled to throw back the head and draw in a larger draught of the fresh strong air and the circulation is improved walking fatiguing you say he continues not a bit of it there is no finer tonic than a good long country walk clearing the brain brightening the eye and bracing up the nerves as no drug ever did yet true there may be a slight sense of physical weariness but even this is delightful when at the end of a good day's tramp you reach some comfortable old-fashioned hostelry and sitting down in the cool room remove your dusty boots and fall on the cold roast beef the butter 
the cheese, bread and ale, with the vigorous appetite which a five hours fast, and the fresh pure air of heaven, and the exercise of all combined to give you, and then the deep peaceful sleep at night, which sends you out the next morning like a giant refreshed. Ah, words cannot express it. You must experience it yourself, my friend, to appreciate it properly, and when once you do, the memory of it will cling to you for ever. But let your own experience be your guide. Most Australians have, at some period of their lives, engaged in one of the many branches of athletics, and it is proof amounting to a mathematical demonstration of the great value of walking that athletes everywhere, no matter for what event they be preparing, make it a part of their training, and they do this because it builds vital power. The added vitality which it gives enables them to increase the vigour of the muscles. It provides the essential thing we call stamina. Medical men are agreed that by this exercise the blood is cleansed of impurities, the eyes become clearer, the complexion improved, and the flesh firmer. Method of Walking Everyone believes that he knows how to walk, and none more so than the man of limited experience. During many years actual practice on the track, I have known many styles, but four only call for mention, namely, 1. The abnormally long stride of the walker who never gets out of step when alone. 2. The short quick stride of the walker whose apparent aim is to get to his destination about midday, who grows desperately weary and has developed a limp by the going down of the sun. 3. The tediously slow, slovenly, no-method style, go a long way in a long time, quite unsuitable for parties of more than one. 4. The even, rhythmic, three miles an hour style, increasing to four as occasion demands. Neither anxious to race nor to lag, is going nearly as fast and firm at sunset as at sunrise, good for any distance. As may be guessed, the last is the method recommended. Of the rest, number three is the most unsatisfactory. My own experience is that for thorough enjoyment of the tour, no pace is equal to the steady three miles an hour. It enables you to see all that is to be seen, and while it does not unnecessarily fatigue, cuts out a satisfactory day's journey. It is worth while to remember that if you walk in a slipshod, slovenly manner, if your movements are not regular, you will tire quickly, and the venture will result in disappointment. Macfadden says, when assuming the proper attitude, the body is always inclined forward while walking. Walking should be a continual fall forward, just as is running. Each step should save you from a fall, and the body should always be inclined far enough forward to ensure a continuance of this position. The entire body should always be erect, shoulders back, chest prominent, head back, and eyes looking straight in front. Many are of the opinion that because an erect attitude is advised in walking, it is necessary to swing the body far backward. This is a serious mistake. Formation of the Party one of the most important details in arranging a walking tour is the formation of the party. The trouble is that in the initial trip you have to risk a lot, and your privilege of choice can only be exercised at a subsequent date. Recognising and shrinking from this difficulty, many walkers have advocated going alone, notably Robert Louis Stevenson. 
Now, to be properly enjoyed, a walking tour should be gone upon alone. If you go in a company, or even in pairs, it is no longer a walking tour in anything but name. It is something else, and more in the nature of a picnic. A walking tour should be gone upon alone, because freedom is of the essence, because you should be able to stop and go on, and follow this way or that as the freak takes you, and because you must have your own pace, and neither trot alongside a champion walker, nor mince in time with a girl. William Hazlitt, too, a considerable walker, preferred a party of one in order to secure unanimity of opinion. He had no objection to argue the point with anyone for twenty miles of measured road, but not for pleasure. If you remark the scent of a beanfield crossing the road, perhaps your fellow-traveller has no sense of smell. If you point to a distant object, perhaps he is short-sighted and has to take out his glass to look at it. There is no sympathy but an uneasy craving after it, and a dissatisfaction which pursues you on the way, and in the end probably produces ill-humour. I cannot see the wit of walking and talking at the same time. When I am in the country, I wish to vegetate like the country. I am not for criticising hedgerows and black cattle. Give me the clear blue sky over my head, and the green turf beneath my feet, a winding road before me, and a three hours' march to dinner. In sharp contrast to this, Lawrence Stern, who, by the way, was not a walker, his sentimental journey notwithstanding, affirms, Let me have a companion of my way, were it but to remark how the shadows lengthen as the sun declines. And when you come to think of it, quite a number of men of letters have been enthusiastic walkers. Only to name a few, George Borrow invariable went afoot, Carlyle in his youth looked upon walking as a natural means of getting from one place to another. For instance, you remember that, on the occasion of his first visit to Edinburgh, he footed it in company of Tom Smale, and repeated the feat several times alone. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, we have it on the word of Hazlitt, could go on in the most delightful explanatory way over hill and dale, a summer's day, and convert a landscape into a didactic poem or a Pindaric ode, and more recently, and a greater walker than any yet named, was the late Sir Leslie Stephen. But to get back, man is a gregarious animal, and although on occasion it may be convenient to have none but yourself to consult as to the scent of the beanfield, pace, variation of route, and the several other things that may crop up, a party of two, three, or four, if it consists of practised walkers of cheerful and agreeable dispositions, who are accustomed to one another's little ways, will be found to work well. Two is the handiest number, and the party should rarely exceed four, as in some of the out-of-the-way places it is difficult to get accommodation for a greater number than four. Indeed, a party of this strength will be uncommonly lucky if it has not sometimes to occupy one sleeping-room containing but two beds. For myself, I prefer a party of two, Equipment. A fixed rule should be to travel light. The question is not so much what to take as what to leave. Means of carrying your requisites is the first consideration, and choice may be said to lie between the knapsack, rucksack, and swag. Of the first two, the knapsack is much to be preferred. It is adjustable, rides high, bringing the weight over the shoulders, and is so constructed that it allows of the free passage of air between it and the back. 
Unfortunately, a serious difficulty confronts one at the outset. Knapsacks of the kind described are neither procurable in Sydney nor in Australia as far as is known, and while they can be purchased in London from eight shillings upwards, the most definite quotation to be got recently from a Sydney firm was possibly as low as thirty shillings, but perhaps forty shillings. The defect in the rucksack, which somewhat resembles a postman's bag, is that it rides low, and as a consequence the weight is thrown on the hips instead of the shoulders. Also, it keeps one unpleasantly hot where it touches the body. The drawback with the swag is that if one wishes to get out the most trifling thing, it must be unrolled, and as in the case of the rucksack, the free passage of air was not contemplated in the design. For the purpose of construction, all that is needed is a piece of good American cloth, one yard long by two wide, and four saddle straps, two to go round the swag, and two to swing it. The swag should swing from the right shoulder, and be balanced by the nose-bag over the left shoulder. An unusually heavy swag is often swung by means of a piece of stout new calico instead of a strap. Individual taste must of course decide what to carry, so that you travel light. Your travelling suit, exclusive of footwear, might consist of undershirt, sweater, knickers and stocking, or pants, according to inclination, coat, soft hat or cap, and belt and sheath-knife. Additionally, the indispensable articles are a couple of light undershirts, a couple of pairs of socks, pyjamas or other sleeping garments, shaving and toilet requisites, only essentials, a small tin box to contain small scissors, needle and thread, tube of lanolin, piece of cotton wool, a few ounces of boracic powder. If camping out be determined upon, a sleeping bag will be required. A sleeping bag is much warmer and handier than an ordinary blanket or rug, and is easily constructed, being merely a blanket or rug with American cloth or canvas cover, folded lengthwise and sewn together at one end and at the side. Before getting into the sleeping bag, a bed of grass or leaves should be prepared, and a hip hole dug out. One may imagine that the articles enumerated will make a formidable swag, but its weight is inconsiderable. So soon as one gets on the track, his coat may be taken off and strapped to the outside of the swag. To prevent inconvenience from rain, a Macintosh cape or umbrella should be taken. The cape will pack away if not wanted, and is easy to carry, but there is much virtue in a homely gamp. It will protect head and shoulders from passing showers, and if the rain be continuous but not sufficiently heavy to hinder progress, it is much cooler than the cape. The nose-bag might contain a supply of biscuit. Biscuit is much preferable to bread, which soon becomes dry and unpalatable. To this might be added dates or figs, a piece of fritz or frankfurt sausage, cheese and little calico bags containing a supply of tea, sugar and a mixture of pepper and salt. If the weather be too cold, two or three pea sausages and some oatmeal might be added in which case it will be necessary to carry a spoon and an extra billy. It should be arranged so that one billy will fit into the other. It is remarkable the taste one gets for water on a walking tour, and if the season be at all dry, a canvas water bag or aluminium bottle should be carried. A drinking vessel will fit into the billy, or can be attached to the belt. The practice of the members of the Warragamba Walking Club is to provision for two days, 
and replenish stock at the stores or accommodation houses en route, and they invariably carry a supply of a preparation of chocolate called plasmon, which, with a bit of biscuit, is an excellent thing to take when travelling before breakfast. Footwear. Grit and pace may be irreproachable, but if one becomes footsore, all enjoyment is gone, and yet so many walkers have difficulty with their feet that to be suitably clad is to be of the elect. A not uncommon recommendation is to get a good strong pair of Cossacks with thick soles and plenty of nails, in spite of which there is only one reliable guide. Everyone must hold fast to that kind of footwear which actual experience has shown to best suit his particular case. The use of a very heavy boot means needless overweighting. The essential thing is that the sole be solid. For this reason, I have for a considerable time used a specially built sandal, and it has proved a great success. At the moment I have two pairs, the older of which has been half-soled four times, and has aggregated about a thousand miles. The newer pair is different in style, being designed to exclude grit and for use on muddy roads. The advantages of a suitable sandal are that it is light, roomy and cool, and yet has the requisite solidity of sole. Particularly it is roomy. The toes have ample space to spread out, with the result that blisters are avoided. Its one defect is that it is not suitable for use in rainy weather, and, consequently, a pair of boots must always be carried. But this need not be a worry. No walker of any experience goes on the track provided with only one pair of boots. Pack the sandals until the actual walking begins, and the pair of boots which are worn when leaving the city will serve for the return, and also for use should it rain. A pair of light slippers will add little to the weight of the swag, and will be much appreciated when resting. Whether sandals or boots are adopted, frequent change is one of the surest means of preserving the feet. Neither the same socks nor the same boots or sandals should be worn on consecutive days, and to change twice each day is so much the better, and no opportunity of bathing the feet, body too for that matter, should be neglected. The question of distance is important. If camping out, one may halt at discretion, but if depending upon accommodation, it will occasionally happen that an unusually long day's journey must be accomplished. Except in the case of the caves and Bell's Line, accommodation at night is available in respect of all trips embraced in this booklet, and no day's journey exceeds twenty-five miles. Occasionally it is as low as fifteen, but in the majority of cases it is about twenty miles. Several of the Warragambas have been compelled on occasion to exceed thirty miles in the day, but there is no poetry in it, and if ventured by a novice might end in disaster. Twenty to twenty-five miles is quite far enough for enjoyment, and sixteen to eighteen miles is no mean performance. Before setting out have a definite itinerary, is the recommendation of all writers on walking trips, and experience confirms this. Unless provision has been made for camping out, and time is not limited, there must be fixed stages for each of the three or four days. The great joy of being unshackled in any way as to daily distance, pace or route is very captivating as a theory, but, like dossing in wet sandstone caves and abandoned huts with unsavoury companions of the road, it does not work out in practice. An Early Start 
to start early is absolutely necessary by this means the annoyance of a tedious wait for breakfast is avoided and however confident the overnight promises may be it is seldom ready at the appointed hour besides the luxury of walking through the crisp sweet morning air with everything around waking into life is missed it is possible to cut some four or five miles before breakfast one resumes as fresh as at the start and by midday such progress has been made as a few hours rest may be indulged in walking for ladies the interest taken in walking by ladies and the number of parties one meets with and hears of on tour is remarkable placed as they are at a considerable disadvantage in the matter of dress they nevertheless compass without inconvenience fifteen to twenty miles a day less than twelve miles a day being accounted by many to be but a small achievement if it be girls in their teens a mixed party in which dad is included is the correct and convenient thing but unfortunately dad is not always available in condition or in the mood and parties consisting exclusively of ladies are by no means uncommon and what a merry company a mixed party is i can recall several such bell to richmond via mount wilson wentworth falls to picton via burragarang katoomba to Janolan caves thence via oberon to tarana mossvale to bury via kangaroo valley mossvale to kayama via fitzroy belmore and carrington falls robertson and jamboroo the merest peep at one of these expeditions must suffice it is a beautiful clear fresh forenoon in october the party having negotiated the long steep hill in front of Janolan caves in the early hours and breakfasted by the roadside is making good progress towards oberon as it makes its way through the scented woodland the girls form the advance guard tripping along expectant chatting merrily and feeling that it is a joy to be alive the men smoke and bring up the rear and most of the luggage to observe the zest with which the girls enter into the more or less commonplace incidents by the way epoch-making events to them is to be rejuvenated they remark on the rude manner in which we prepare the chops for breakfast and speculate as to whether the mailman to be met presently will bring the loaf ordered by wire from Janolan for our lunch later a farmer's wife is met driving a few ewes and lambs she is carrying a weakling the maternal instinct is in evidence at once everybody would like to nurse the lamb and many terms of endearment are lavished on it while the good woman seems unable to grasp the fact that the girls are from sydney and are walking for pleasure at intervals a halt is called and the water-bag passed round and finally camp is pitched and the party lunches under a shady tree on the bank of the duck malloy a camera being invariably included in the outfit i am able to present a few pictures taken on different tours and which show the girls as they actually appear when footing it there are several trips which cut up into suitable distances for ladies and on which the necessary accommodation is obtainable while under special conditions it is competent for lady walkers to undertake such delightful trips as bell to richmond via mount wilson and Currajong heights katoomba to tarana via Janolan caves wentworth falls to camden or picton via the burragarang it is regretted these routes cannot be recommended the ladies country par excellence lies between the southern tableland and the coast 
Moss Vale to Nowra or to Berry, Moss Vale to Albion Park, Chamberoo, Kayama or Wollongong, Bowral to Nowra or Berry, all fully described herein, and most of which cut up into easy distances of twelve to fourteen miles a day with adequate accommodation. Observe what they embrace Fitzroy, Belmore, Carrington, and Minamurra Falls, Manning Lookout and Kangaroo Valley, Barangari, Camberwara, and Berry Mountains, Robertson Park and Macquarie Pass. If I were asked to select one more suitable than the rest for inexperienced walkers, without hesitation, it would be Moss Vale to Berry via Kangaroo Valley. This trip cuts up into easy distances. There is first-rate accommodation to be had at moderate cost, and it would be difficult to mention one more beautiful. As regards one-day trips, it might be said that almost all routes described in this class are practicable for ladies, the easier ones being Waterfall to Audley, Guildford to Borkham Hills via Prospect Reservoir, Penshurst to Audley via Georges and Warrenora Rivers, Pimble to Parramatta, Curringai Chase, Pimble to the Spit, via St. Ives and French's Forest, perhaps even Hornsby to Borkham Hills. However, the distance is given in each case, and what may be accomplished without fatigue is a matter for personal decision. Then there is the important question of dress, and here mere man recognises the limitations of his sex. The material should be as light as the weather will permit, and the skirt short. Shoes or boots, according to inclination, but they must be well-fitting, with solid soles and broad heels. Carry as little additional clothing as possible. It is far better to send a change on ahead by rail or coach. For further information in this relation, see notes on equipment earlier. What has been said in the foregoing pages may be epitomised under these six headings, and the advice should be particularly remembered. 1. Travel light. 2. Make an early start, breakfasting on the track. 3. Never wear one pair of boots, sandals or socks for more than one day, and half-day change is recommended as giving the best results. 4. Bathe the feet at every opportunity. 5. Do not start on a long trip without some preparation. 6. If not in the habit of regular sea-bathing, the feet should be soaked, as long as convenient, daily, in a solution of salt and water, Cover the feet with common soap lather or boracic acid each morning, just before starting. Note, as fares and timetables are subject to frequent revision, reference should be made to the Government Tourist Bureau for information as to their correctness at the time of inquiry. The charges for accommodation vary from six shillings to twelve and sixpence per day at hotels, one pound one shilling to two pound two shillings per week at boarding houses, and from £1 to £1.10 shillings per week at farmhouses. The Government Tourist Bureau will, upon personal or written application, readily furnish detailed information as to routes, the cost of railway, motor or coach service and accommodation, brochures and maps giving detailed particulars of most of the state's tourist districts may be had gratis from the Bureau. End of Part 1